Psalm 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. And uh, I think we've seen that this morning. Hasn't the singing been wonderful? I mean, it's been both pleasant and beautiful. And uh, that's what God said it would be. And so we uh, are glad to be here. I, I really want to thank all of you for being here. And I want to say a few things, but let's, I, I have a few items that are family matters here and uh, a couple uh, house cleaning matters that I want to share with you and then we'll, we'll get into the lesson. First of all, as has already been mentioned, there are cards in the pew in front of you. If you haven't done so yet, please take just a minute, whether you're a visitor or a member, and fill those out for us. We, we work hard to invite our friends and our family to this day, and we kind of set a personal goal for ourselves, and we would like it and appreciate it if you would fill that card out so that um, it'll help us to see whether or not we met that goal. We're not going to sign you up to our weekly mailing or to uh, uh, come by at supper time and, and visit you. Uh, that's not what that's about. But we would like to be able to have a record of you being here. And if you um, could do so and, and write how many came with you, we would really appreciate that. Just pass those to the center aisles or to the aisles, and uh, some young men will come by at the end of services and pick those cards up. Also, today is, uh, well, it's a great day. But there's a, a degree of sadness for those of us who are members here at Carnes. Laverne Fox Mead, this is her last Sunday here. Uh, she'll be moving to Texas, and um, we hate to see her go. Uh, I don't see where you are, Laverne. Where is she? There she is, yeah. Well, we, we want to thank you and wish you God's best as you make this transition in your life. And, and we'll miss you. And we hope that you'll keep in contact with us. And if you haven't uh, spoken to her, uh, be sure you do so before you leave here today. And one other thing, the services today are streaming live over the Internet. Um, we know that in Ireland, Dawn and Ann Wagner are watching right now. In fact, the church in Ireland is watching right now. So... Uh, this day has not only a lot of folks here, uh, but it is, uh, I guess it has a worldwide audience as well. And so we send them greetings across the ocean. But this morning, I, again, I want to thank all of you for being here. We really appreciate you coming and accepting our invitations to be with us. A lot of visitors, a lot of friends, and that means the world to us. We value here at Carnes, we value friends, we value our family, we value our faith. Those are three things that are really important to us, and we have all three of them here this morning. It's not often that we all get to worship together. I know you have obligations at other places, but we decided, you know, if we could just do this one time a year, to get together, and, and uh, we know it was an obligation and, and uh, you know, a, a sacrifice on your part to be here with us today, and we appreciate that. But we want, to, we want to express to you just how much we appreciate you being here. We're not like the family that invited the preacher over for dinner. I don't know if you've heard this story. Now, you know, I grew up in a preacher's home, 
And my mom, we kept the preacher whenever he came and would hold a week-long meeting or something. They stayed at our house. And the week before they would arrive, my mom went on this cleaning frenzy. She would, she would pull the refrigerator out from the wall and the stove and clean behind. I've gone to a lot of homes preaching through the years that I've been a preacher. I've never pulled anyone's refrigerator out and looked back behind. I don't know why she did that, but she did. But anyway, sometimes it's a lot of work to have the preacher over. Now, I do see on top of your refrigerators, by the way, but uh, you might want to dust a little, but... There was a family that had the preacher over, and uh, it came time to eat the meal. And uh, the father of the house asked the preacher to say the prayer, the blessing for the food. And the, the preacher said, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to pass, and I'd like to hear your little son say the prayer. Six-year-old boy. Well, that boy's eyes got real big, like, whoa, put on the spot. I, I don't know about saying a prayer in front of this stranger and... And he, he kind of said, I, I can't. And that kind of embarrassed the mother because she thought maybe the preacher would think that they hadn't taught their son how to pray. And she said, well, sure you can, Johnny. Just, just pray. And he said, no, Mom, I don't think I can. She said, why, certainly you can. You've heard me pray. You've heard me talk to God. Just say what you've heard me say. <laughs> you know where I'm going, don't you? And so he said, okay, bow your heads. And everybody bowed their head, and he said, Lord, what was I thinking when I had this preacher over for dinner? In Jesus' name, amen. We don't feel that way about you all coming here and being with us. We, we are glad to put the extra chairs out, and, and uh, we're going to have a good time of fellowship in just a little bit with uh, the meal. We hope you can stay for the meal with us. There's plenty of food. Don't, don't give a second thought to that. And then at 1 o'clock, we're going to, uh, well, at 12.30, actually, we're going to reconvene in here and uh, have some songs for a half an hour. And then at 1 o'clock, Justin Morton, uh, one of the ministers here, is going to uh, deliver the afternoon lesson. So we hope you'll stay for all of those, if at all possible. I, I think um, you'll, you'll be happy that you did. All right, well, let's talk about our lesson this morning. The game of life. You've probably played it. You probably, if you had children, you probably have a board at the house. And, and the object of the game is to start out and you work your way around the board and you get to the end where you have, you know, you're either going to the poorhouse or you have this huge mansion that you live in. And I really, as a child, I never quite understood because the poorhouse on the little board game looked as nice as the mansion did to me. I mean, it was a big old building and I thought, well, that's not that bad, but the object of the game of life was to navigate life, and there were things you'd land on certain squares, and, and it would make things difficult, it would be costly, or you land on other squares, and you had blessings and windfalls that come your way. But there are certain rules you have to play by. You can't just, uh, well, if you want to finish well, if you don't want to end up in the poorhouse, but in the mansion, there were some things that you could do in that game that would help you. One of them was right at the very start. There's a shortcut if you go straight when you roll, or you can go further and take the college route. And if you went the college route, you got a, a larger paycheck. 
you might be a little behind on the board, but the amount of money that you would accumulate by the time you got done with the game, it would be worth it to go a little slower um, to receive. So there was, there was strategy. There was strategy to the game. Much like the game of life, we live the reality of life. And it works in a very similar fashion. There are rules by which we must live. And if we want to finish life well and receive, well, John 14, verses 1 through 3, speaks of a heavenly mansion that Jesus is preparing for us. And that he said, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. I want one of those mansions. I want to live with God forever. I want to finish this life well. It's not a game. It's reality. You know, when my daughter, Kelly, was little, and she would say her nightly prayer, she would pray for that mansion. Just like you get to the end of the game of life, you have that mansion. Well, God promises the mansion to us. And, and our daughter would pray. Her, her mansion was pink. She would pray, Lord, be, you know, as you build this pink mansion, she would describe what she wanted in it and so forth. And, and uh, one of the things she wanted was that it to be big enough that all of her cousins could live in it, her grandma and granddad or Grammy and Papa, and all the, everybody could live there in that same house. I used to joke with my wife that, you know, that, that vision of heaven for her, where everybody lives together... Living with my in-laws forever in the same house was not quite my image, but I think she had it right. She did. But I want to go to heaven. I want to be a part of that heavenly mansion. But to do that and to receive that, I have to uh, play by the rules. And some of the rules we talked in Bible class this morning is we, we have to have faith. We have to go through life and have our faith in God. That is essential. And it's, we have to be careful that we place our faith in the right object. Faith by itself is of no value. It's the object in which you place it that gives it the great value. I can place my faith in all the wrong things and I'll be led astray and I'll pay a price for it. I, I need to place my faith in God. And uh, that's one of the rules of life. He'll never leave you. He'll never disappoint you. He'll keep his word. He is faithful. Therefore, we, we place our faith and trust in him. But the second thing, the second rule of life that I want to talk about in this for the next 20 or so minutes is feelings. We need to have feelings. We need to have appropriate feelings. Sometimes we... Uh, think that, or at least we act as though, I've seen people act as though it's all just Christianity is all about getting everything figured out, just a doctrinal set of propositions. It's more than that. We have to have feelings that accompany our faith. But feelings alone can be dangerous too if they're not within the bounds of God's Word. A number of years ago, back, well, many years ago, there was a team in Oklahoma, a football team. They were just terrible. They had become, well, the whole town was a little bit depressed during football season. Uh, these guys would get out there, and they would just get clobbered by everybody that they played. 
And then they would ultimately have that arch-rival, cross-town rival, and every year they played them, they just got whipped. And so it had, the guys on the team were down, the school was down, there was no school spirit, the, the community was down because of this. So there was a man who was a rich oil man, and he asked the coach if he could go in and talk to the team after one of their crushing defeats. And he went in that Friday night and he said, listen guys, we're tired of losing. I know you're tired of losing. We need to turn this program around, and so here's what I'm going to do. Next week, we play our arch rival, that cross-town team. If we win that game, I will give each player a brand-new Ford automobile, and I'll give the coaches one. Man, there was an uproar in that locker room. The guys were cheering and chanting and hollering, and, and they for the next seven days... Man, these guys lived and breathed and ate and drank football. They were as excited. They had some of the best practices. The coaches were excited. They were spending more time working on their game plan. Everything was leading up to this. The guys sat there and thought of touchdowns and rumble seats. You know, they were, they were excited. And then they could think of what they'd look like driving that new car with all those girls, you know, that want to ride with them. And so they were excited. They were working hard. Seven days later, Friday night, <clears throat> they have one last meeting in the locker room. The coach gives them one of those speeches, and they all join hands, and they, they yell, let's go. And they run out on the field, and they get out on the sideline, and they get set, and they kick it off. And two hours later... They were beat by 38 to nothing. <laughs> All that excitement and emotion translated into nothing on the football field. If it were feelings alone, if that's what could have won that game, they would have won the game. But some things require more than just feelings. And life is like that. I, I can't finish life well just because I have a good feeling about certain things. I need to have the right kind of feelings, and the feelings need to be directed in the right kind of way. Emotions alone don't get it done. In fact, the Bible warns us that <clears throat> emotions can be harmful. Feelings alone can be deceptive, and, and they can cause us to make poor choices, unbiblical choices. Just this past week, I read of a church leader, a very prominent man, he was asked a question on, um, what if your wife has Alzheimer's and you're married and she doesn't even know who you are anymore? Can you go ahead and divorce her? That man, without much hesitation, said, yes, that's the thing to do. If she doesn't know who you are anymore, then divorce her and find companionship with someone else. You see, here's one of the problems. That, that's based on feelings. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I feel like God wants me to be happy. And I'm kind of in a downer relationship right here. And so, you know, if God wants me to be happy, maybe I can justify that. No, you can't. You see, those are feelings that get outside the Word of God and the instruction that He's given. I can't think of many things that 
are as unethical as that action. When your spouse needs you the most, to walk away is mind-boggling. But some people could justify it by feelings. I had a woman who walked away from her husband and two little boys. I knew a woman who walked away from her husband and two little boys because she felt like she could be happier with another man. Justifiable because of feelings? No, that, that doesn't work. I've heard people say things like, well, I don't feel like God would punish a person if they did this. And usually what they say is something that the Bible speaks against, but they just don't think that that's big enough for God to to punish. I don't feel like God would because it just doesn't seem that bad to me. Again, feelings can lead you down the wrong path, can't they? I've heard people say, well, on one occasion I had a Bible study with a man and we were talking about some of the things that God wants us to do. And he said, no, wait, 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 wait. And he went like this. He said, I wouldn't trade the feeling I have right here for a stack of Bibles this high. That's what he did. He patted his heart, and then he went like this, stack of Bibles that high. He was putting his feelings over the Word of God itself. You see, that's where we get in trouble with feelings. That's where feelings can wreck us in our way of life. The Bible reminds us in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 16 that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. There are some things that feel right, but they're not. We have to govern those things by the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 26, and this is really blunt and bold and right to the point, but the wise man said, a man who trusts in his own heart... That man's a fool. You can't trust in your feelings. Your feelings can be wrong. They can lead you in a wrong direction. So what place do feelings have? I believe they're important. I believe they're necessary. We have to feel in order to please God and to finish this reality of life. But they have to take a back seat to the Word of God. God's Word has to drive us. Feelings can sit in the back. When we let our feelings drive and put God's Word in the back, that's when we have trouble. But I want you to consider some of the feelings that we need to excel in as we try to finish this life well. One is compassion. I want to grow in compassion. I have room for improvement. I'm not where my Lord was when it comes to compassion. In Mark chapter 6, there's an occasion when Jesus had just heard that John the Baptist had been put to death, beheaded by Herod. John was a friend, a forerunner of Jesus, a a relative of Jesus. He's got to be devastated. And so Jesus decides to go with his disciples and get off by themselves and just have a little time by themselves to recoup and regroup. And he can't. Because when they go off to try to get by themselves, people see them and multitudes of people gather around and and press in on them. There were over 5,000 men present who came on that occasion. And the Bible says that when Jesus saw them, 
and I think this is amazing, he looked at them and had compassion. I don't know that that would have been my response. Have you ever been so busy? Have there ever been times when you just want to be alone? You just want to, you you got stuff to do. You have your own agenda. You, You need a day off. You need just left alone to get done what you need to get done. Have you ever had those moments and and then somebody calls or somebody stops by and, and, you know, there are times when I view people and probably you view people as a disruption to our schedule and inconvenience. Sometimes, and it seems like it happens this way, when I'm the busiest or when you're the busiest, isn't that sometimes when it seems like more people need you for this, that, or the other? It happens. I don't want to lose compassion for people. I don't want to view people as an inconvenience to my schedule. Jesus didn't view people as a disruption. He didn't view people as an inconvenience to his schedule. People, that's who Jesus was about. That was his mission. They were his mission. And I want to get and develop that kind of compassion so that I can have that same point of view. Kim, my wife, she's as compassionate as anybody that I know. When we were dating, we went to a movie on one occasion. And, you know, sometimes they scroll like who did what, the directors, this person, and the producer. All that scrolling as the movie's getting started. And behind the words and stuff, they were showing this little scene of something. That she started crying in the, in the uh, you know, credits. And I thought, man, that, you know, I, I could never do that. A couple years ago, the movie Up, the cartoon Up, Pixar, came out. Did you all watch that? I went with Anne Marie to go see Up. And I'm sitting there trying not to burst out boohooing in this movie theater. It's a, it's a cartoon nonetheless. And I'm just thinking, what am I going to do if I just let out this wailing cry? And I fought with all my might to keep from crying during that movie. And I go home and I tell Kim about it. And she said, well, that's silly. That's just a cart, <laughs> that's just a cartoon. So when it came out on DVD, I bought it, and I made her watch it. Oh, the tears, you know, that was... (laughs) But if you haven't seen that, go see that. But here's the point. We need to be compassionate. And I'll tell you, one of the things about Jesus that made him compassionate is that he never lost focus. I shared this with uh, the congregation here before, but not everybody was here, so I'll share it again, but... One of the things, Jesus saw people as an opportunity, not as an inconvenience. He was about people. And I don't always have that focus. When Anne-Marie was just a little girl, our youngest daughter, she was probably 18 months old. I came home from work one day, and I heard crying, and I looked in the kitchen, and there she was, just had a hold of... Kim's leg and just crying, holding on, and Kim's trying to cook, and she has one of those exasperated looks like, will you take her? And so I said, okay, I I will, and I I got her, and we went to her bedroom, and I started stacking blocks, and she would, like, let it get four or five high, and she would knock it over and laugh. She thought that was so funny, 
And uh, we did that for a while, but children get disinterested quickly. And so she went off and did her own thing, and I continued stacking blocks. And I made a pretty neat castle. And when she saw that castle, she decided, I'm going to knock down some more blocks. And she came back at it, and I stopped her, and I, I scooted her away. And she just kind of looked at me funny and came at him again, and I stopped her and scooted her away. And then her lip puckered out and just started wailing, boo-hoo, crying. And it dawned on me, I'm 40 years old, and I'm playing blocks, and I won't let my daughter play. I had taken her back there to get her to quit crying, and I caused her to cry. I lost focus, and I do that really easily. Jesus never lost focus. When he was 12 years old, he was lost in Jerusalem all alone, three days. And when they find him, he says to his mother, don't you know I must be about my father's business? As a child, he was about the business of his father. One of the last things he says on the cross before he loses his life, gives his life, he says on the cross, Father, it is finished. His mission from the time of his youth to to his last breath that he draws, it's all about his mission, which is people. And that's why Jesus was compassionate. He could look at people and realize this person isn't an inconvenience. This is who I came to save. And I want that same kind of focus in my life. I want to feel the compassion of Christ when I see people. I don't want them to be an inconvenience. That's how feelings can be used in a productive way. To feel compassion for people who are hurting and lost. Another thing that we need to feel is repentance. I need to feel sorrow for sin. I don't want to just go through life and and say these um, rote prayers where, you know, Father, forgive me of my sins, in Jesus' name, amen. And then I just hit the, you know, pillow and I'm gone. You know, just this nightly ritual I say just to get my sins cut. I, I want to be broken by my sins, I don't want to just have this formula that I say and God magically forgives me. I want to feel... Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 32 and listen to David as he describes... Of course, you remember he sinned with Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, then kills her husband or has her husband killed, and feeling pretty guilty about that, as he should. But listen to what David says as he prays. He said... Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is just so thankful. Blessed is the man who's forgiven. I'm so thankful that God does not hold me guilty for my sins. When I kept silent, he says... My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David said, man, when I was guilty and when I hadn't come clean, it crushed me. It was hard. I want to feel crushed by the weight of my sin. I don't want us to take lightly what Jesus has done for us. I want us, when I say, I am sorry, I want to mean that. You probably have had children, siblings that fuss with each other. And one of the things that we have done through the years with our kids is we make them tell each other they're sorry. That's some of the most insincere apologies I have ever heard in my life. First of all, they go kind of like this. You tell her you're sorry, or you tell him you're sorry, and what will come out is something along this line. It's just a two-syllable grunt. And we say, we we can't understand that. You're going to have to try again. And they, they go through... You four or five times, and finally you'll get about as good as you get is, I'm sorry, you know, with the teeth still gritted, grit, you know, and that's not, that's not repentance. That's what we offer up as a ritual, but that's not repentance. I want to be broken by sin. You know, we watched The Passion of the Christ, the movie with the youth group a number of years ago, and... Uh, <clears throat> When the movie finished, and if you've seen this, you, you understand what I'm talking about, how dramatic it was. But when the movie came to a finish, no one said anything. Those young people were sitting there. There were tears that were flowing. People were, were brokenhearted. Because it took what was in the pages of this book and helped them to see it for what it was and what our sins did to our Lord. I want to feel that brokenness, that sorrow over my sins. That's the kind of feelings that will help me to finish this life well. And then I want to I feel the courage to be loyal to my, to my God. There are a lot of people who are admirers of Jesus, but there are far few, fewer followers you see, admirers look on and they, they, yeah, I like that. I like that too. But when pressed, they'll desert. When called upon to, to stand up and face persecution, they'll abandon the cause. We don't need admirers of the gospel of Christ. We need followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. And I want to be more loyal to my God. In Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning about verse 7, Jeremiah talks about how that um, the people held him in derision every day. He's trying to be a prophet of God and speak for God and tell them the things that they need to hear. And they just, they give him grief. And he says, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm going to shut up. I'm not saying anything else. I quit. And then it says that there began to well up within him a fire in his bones and he couldn't contain it. And he had to speak because he was loyal to God. He couldn't just not say what God wanted him to say. I want that kind of feeling in my life. I want to be bold and courageous, to, to be willing to stand up and speak for God.
listen, don't talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers to me. If you want to run down the Steelers, I'm going to fight you on it. You know, I love the Steelers, and I'm going to defend the Steelers. And even, uh, you know, John may enjoy the LSU win last night, but my West Virginia Mountaineers, don't talk bad about the Mountaineers. You know, there are certain things. Don't talk bad about my kids either. That, that gets me a little upset. You know, do you, do you know what I'm saying? We, we, we come to rally at the defense of things that are precious to us. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who runs down your Savior? Who has spoken evil against his church and said nothing and done nothing? If I can defend the Pittsburgh Steelers, surely I can defend my Lord and Savior. We need to be men of courage, women of courage, who are loyal to the cause of Christ. Mark chapter 6, well, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus talked about John the Baptist. And he said, you know, what did you expect to see when you went out and saw this guy? A reed shaken by the wind? John was a rough character. I mean, he was, he was just a little bit different. And he was rough and, and he spoke boldly for the Lord. It cost him his life. But I want to have that kind of boldness so that I can remain loyal to my God. Those are the kinds of feelings that we need to have in our life. To let our feelings run ahead, that's going to get us in trouble. You can't lead with your feelings. That's like you know, a boxer leading with his chin. You're going you're gonna to get knocked down. What you need to do is to let the Word of God lead your life and have your feelings come into compliance with that word, there are a lot of things that we need to feel. And if we do, we'll be better people for it. God is a God of emotion. And if I'm to be like Him, which is my goal, I want to be God-like. I want to be godly. I need to feel. And I need to have emotion in my life, but it needs to be kept proper and within proper bounds. The game of life. It's a fun game as a kid. I remember playing it. And how you finish up at the end of that game depends on how you played the game. What you did with the choices you had. Well, this isn't a game. This is real. And someday we're going to reach the end of the road and we'll have to give an answer and account for our life and what we did in this life will have, well, bearing on whether we receive one of those heavenly mansions or whether we hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. I need to play by the rules. I need to have faith in God. And I, I need to have feelings that are directed by the will of God. And if I have those things, they'll lead me to the end of this life, and I can stand before God with confidence. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a child of God, don't, don't run ahead with your feelings. Listen to what the Word of God says. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 15 and 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It doesn't matter what we feel about that. That's what the Word of God says. And so what we ought to do is bring our feelings in line with what the Word of God says. If you haven't done that, 
will assist you in that this morning. And God will do what He said. He's faithful. He'll forgive us. He'll save us. If you're a child of God already but unfaithful and you need to make your life right, you need the prayers of your brethren to be stronger as you go out this week and face the world. We'll pray with you to that end if you'll come as we stand together and sing.